Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. We are very happy to welcome Steve Oaken into the studio. First time in two and a half years. Steve, welcome back. You know, I feel just like your listeners. I'm, I'm sitting here in the dark. And, uh, <laughs> We're all in the dark, <laughs> literally dark. and figuratively <laughs> speaking. <Together. Yes. laughs> well, great to have you back, Steve. And uh, thanks for making the effort to come in this morning. Uh, living with the endemic, we um, are going to talk first about the ASEAN summit that just concluded in the U.S. It was on Thursday and Friday. President Biden got everybody together for the first time since 2016 in the U.S. Um, talk to us. Give us the overview of, of how that went, that meeting. Well, I thought this was a very good kickoff as part of the Biden administration's strategy towards the region. If you look at what they've done in the Asia-Pacific, it's primarily been focused on the security side of things. You know, they've had the Quad, which is, you know, the U.S., Japan, Australia, and India, and that's primarily focused on military. The president... Biden took that to the leader level for the first time. Then the U.S. started to share, you know, nuclear submarine technology with with the Australians under the AUKUS deal. So the U.S., Australia and in the U.K. Now the shift is more towards Southeast Asia. Now the shift hopefully gets to be towards economics. And, And this is where the administration said they want to help ASEAN where ASEAN needs the help. And hopefully that is exactly where we're going to to go from here. On that point, Steve, nobody mentioned China by name. Uh, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris never mentioned it by name, but she did say the United States and ASEAN have a shared vision for this region and together we'll guard against threats to the international rules and norms. If ever a country was named without being named, is that the elephant in the room? Is that why we're seeing these closer ties now? Well, I mean, it's not the elephant in the room. I mean, this is the behemoth Mm. uh, in the region. I mean, China is the biggest economic trading partner now with basically every country in Southeast Asia. And so what the United States needs to do is to give... ASEAN a reason to be closer to the United States because there's every reason for ASEAN to be closer to China. And that's what this is part mm. part of what this was about. And so, of course, China was, was part of the agenda, even if it was not explicit. I mean, putting money into maritime security mm. in Southeast Asia is is a direct response to what China has been doing in the South China Sea, violating uh, international agreements mil- by militarizing uh, you know the, the 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 South China Sea, the islands it's taken over. So of course China was core to to this meeting. Just to follow up, Steve, um, is it enough? Is it enough? There was a there was a suspicion, a, a a feeling, if you like, an opinion that he came to the region a little bit too late. We do accuse sometimes yeah. of being a bit too pro Biden. Could it be said that the words lame duck president have been thrown around? I'm sure you would disagree with that. But is there a sense maybe this is a little too little too late? And, and Neil, I just mentioned, you know, we talked about this last week, Steve. What would the U.S. need to do to prove yeah. that it's really going to stay engaged? You know, would there be enough sweeteners on the table uh, that that, you know, the rest of ASEAN would I say? I mean, 115 yeah, million vaccines are nice. It's great. It's helpful. But. Was it $60 million for the maritime security or something? It, I mean, that's not that much money, to be honest, right? Look, in Southeast Asia, and I'll, I'll, to quote Tommy Kuo, the U.S. is seen as a benevolent superpower. Right. And China is influential but not trusted. Yeah. And so what the U.S. needs to do, because 
the people in Southeast Asia, you know, the government want to work with the United States. Sure. They want the United States to be here, but they need the United States to be here, not just on COVID, which is important, not just on on security, which is very important, but also on economics and trade. Capital T, trade, right? And that's what we have yeah. to th- – th- so the question is what's next? What does – what comes out of this summit? The president is soon going to announce the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, the details of this framework – And that's the question. Is there going to be real market access addressed here? Are there going to be significant advancements when it comes to digital trade? Because that's what the countries here want and hasn't gotten it yet. So the last two days, were there any significant trade or economic things mentioned uh, for, for ASEAN? Well, not when it comes to a trade agreement. That has to get worked out. There have been significant things. And even symbolically, the president yesterday in the United States announced that he's going to nominate an ambassador to ASEAN. That position has been vacant. And he's nominating somebody from his National Security Council, nominating somebody sitting in the White House now. So that's a very good sign. Look, we should have had an ASEAN ambassador nominated Mm. long ago. But it's not too little too late. It's time to do it. Now let's move forward. The president's coming to Japan and South Korea. Let's see what comes out of that part of the trip, too. Hmm. Is it, I mean, looking forward, what more, you mentioned Japan, what more would you like to see moving ahead? Because we're a little bit of a broken record on this show. Glenn and I have been talking about this. It wasn't enough for the first two years. There wasn't enough engagement in ASEAN. You've mentioned a couple of things. You've used the word symbolically, which always sounds like a bit of a wishy-washy term. <laughs> yes, yeah, symbolism is nice, but where's but, the hard capital, political, you know, and economic? Where's the beef, right? What, yeah, exactly. Where's the beef? Where do we go from here? Well, and that's what we that's the the big question. And one of the things that the United States in this visit, they took the members of of the the leaders of ASEAN or the eight of who were there like to Capitol Hill to understand the Mm. political dynamics going on. But I think the leaders here are going to say, well, what does we have our own political dynamics? We understand you have a tough time on trade with labor unions and, and with the protectionists now, not just in the Democratic Party, but in the Republican Party. But you've got to work through that. I mean, we understand it, but, but we can't sit around and wait. And it was very interesting. Bloomberg had an article this week, and the headline in that article was Biden's fear of big trade deals. They then changed the headline to say Biden's no-show on trade deals. Ah. And a really interesting distinction. Was Bloomberg right the first time in saying there's a fear in the United States of trade deals? Brilliant. Do you know, um, I, I'm loving Steve's insight. Two things. One, I feel we're much harder on him when he's in the studio. It's I, great. I, I yeah. like that, Glenn. We yeah. need to keep that going. That's Two, good. it's very hard to say, <laughs> you know, take what he's saying seriously when we all look like we're in recording the hostage videos. <laughs> Please release us. Hostage videos. But uh, I'm going to, seeing as you're in the studio, and we've talked about Biden quite a lot, I'm going to put you on the spot. In the studio, first time, give us a scorecard. How has Biden done for you so far? And here's like when it comes to the number one issue, is it Biden and what he has done for Asia Pacific versus what Trump has done for Asia Pacific? And I would take Biden 10 times out of 10 when it comes to his engagement in Asia Pacific to date. He is doing what needs to get done, and that is work with allies, work with partners. Everything that the Trump administration did was was bilateral. It was to leverage the U.S. economic power over over the countries Mm. they were in. Mm. And, And the Biden approach is completely opposite. Now, 
if you were going to say, how has he done in his first you know, year and a half? He's one third through his term. Mm. He hasn't chalked up any wins on the economic and trade front. But that's not anything that Biden administ- that the Trump administration did. And it's not anything the Obama administration did. So what we need to do now is push to get them to move forward. The United States has not signed a new significant trade agreement in Asia Pacific in over a decade. Wow. The last one was the U.S.-Korea FTA. Yeah. Wow. So this is a long-term failure of the United States. Look, kudos to the Obama administration for trying. They actually signed the TPP, but then, of course, President Trump pulled out yeah. three days yeah. in. But we've got to get back into the trade game. And that's what, you know, again, we did this event with, with Ambassador Tommy Ko at the American Club. Asians live for trade. Yeah. That's yeah. what they want. Yeah. The U.S. is doing exactly the opposite and has been doing exactly the opposite other than the one effort that, that ended up failing of the of I the had no idea about that decade-long trade. Yeah. With, I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, Steve, yesterday I was uh, hosting uh, a webinar with AMRO and the ASEAN Plus 3 Macroeconomic Organization and the Asian Development uh, ADB uh, out, of, uh, out of the Philippines. And everybody that was on that, uh, on the panel – all talked about RCEP and how RCEP is so important to this region. Where is the U.S. on RCEP right now, which is that, that other comprehensive trade agreement? Well, the U.S. has zero chance of joining RCEP, and the, and the reason for that is because RCEP is an ASEAN-led agreement. The U.S. does not have any real trade uh, agreements, certainly with countries like Laos and, mm. and, and Cambodia, and, and not much of one, one yet with, with Indonesia, really. So the U.S. is going to be blocked out of, out of RCEP for quite some time. And the fact that China is in it will, will, of course, complicate that, too. The U.S. could be coming back to the, the TPP, which then became the comprehensive, you know. Uh, CPTPP. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, yeah, that's confusing. And that's where the U.S. Is, is, is out of that now, too. So this is what IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, is trying to do. And, and that is where it's a very – where the U.S. really needs to start engaging much more on trade and not just be symbolic. It, it's taken – it's going to take time, but we now have really got to get something. Everybody's screaming for a digital trade agreement. Because yeah. that's the one that's the, the, the lowest hanging fruit. Singapore's already in a couple of them. You can build upon those, and you can make a very strong argument that digital trade is what SMEs in the United States need to be able to, to access this region. And that's what we're really pushing hard for in the business community. Brilliant. Well, moving ahead, Steve. A story that had me crying myself to sleep last night. You know, where's my world's smallest violin when I need it? Elon Musk tweeted Friday that his 44 billion US billion dollar deal with Twitter is currently on hold while they assess their fake accounts. What's your take on that? Well, when you've stopped laughing. <laughs> I love that story. When, when you stop playing your violin. I mean, this is a the, – the question was, was Elon Musk ever in, interested in this for the business? Was he ever interested mm. in this or was this a different type of, of play? Look, Twitter is in some ways extremely important in the United States because it is the digital yeah. town square. Um, and Elon Musk wanted – to take over Twitter because he wanted to run that digital town square. 
but he wasn't really thinking about it from a business perspective. Apparently, he wasn't running those. You wouldn't make this bid. I mean, you know, I've, I've been involved in deals on on the side. You would have known this before you made your bid yeah. and 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 put down, you know, your own money. Mm. And so now, with the stock market in fall, with with. Tesla in particular in fall, with crypto in fall. What is he going to do financially? It sounds like he's trying to look for any excuse, but I don't know that legally this is an excuse for him to pull out of the deal. But from an ego, I mean, ego aside, I never quite understood, um, Steve, what he was hoping to gain from this. I mean, was it purely ego? Because people know Twitter doesn't make the sums of money that some of the other social media platforms make. What was in it for Elon Musk? Yeah, Steve, when you had dinner with him last week, what did he say? Come on now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, if you look at it, 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 it two, two, of, two of the richest people in the world, right? Jeff Bezos bought. And you. And, and, no. and, and the three of us Neil, combined, yeah. right? <laughs> Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post because he felt that that was in the interests of the United States to have a strong newspaper in Washington, D.C., covering the, the, the capital in particular, and then, and then, of course, really the whole world, and that that was in the public interest. Now, you could argue Elon Musk felt the same way about Twitter, but it, it clearly is very different because Elon Musk really wanted to run Twitter. He wanted to be the CEO yeah. of Twitter. Yeah. Jeff Bezos looked at his investment in the Washington Post apparently much more as in the public interest. And that's an entirely different way of, of looking at things. But look, look what happened with the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong and, yeah. you know, and who purchased that? I mean, so this is something that, that the media – you know, is not really, we don't want it to become, you know, part and parcel of Mm. of individuals who Mm. can then control it. But that's what's happening. Steve, uh, just lastly, finally, you were in the studio and we just spoke with uh, David Hoffman of the conference board. And he talked about the three elements that are under consideration for China v. Taiwan, um, much the way that Russia v. Ukraine has has, uh, come up in our uh, common discussions in the last couple of months. His three points. Right, China's military is not ready to invade Taiwan. Uh, U.S. and global resolve to support Taiwan is there, and it's strong enough that they probably would not want to attempt something like that right now. And the economic costs to China of sanctions. Uh, broadly, do you agree with his uh, assessment of of that? Well, the three things you just said absolutely describe you know Putin in Russia, and mm. it didn't deter him from invading Ukraine. So. Putin made a decision which he felt was in his own interest, and he was really the only decision maker on it. The question which we don't know in China is President Xi Jinping solely in charge of this decision. And if he's in charge of this decision, he is going to make it from his own idiosyncratic his own idiosyncratic point of view, which is, mm. is this in, as I see, the interest of, of China? And we just mm. don't know. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Good stuff. Uh, any last uh, quick question or comment? Uh, well, I just wanted to yeah. add to that. I mean, I would say in modern history terms, Russia has more of a militaristic approach, shall we say, than China. Does that not set them apart? It, well, it has historically. But if you look at what China has become in the past you know, few years, it has become – you can debate whether the word is assertive or aggressive. It has become much more assertive in the South China Sea. It has become much more assertive on the border with India. It has become much more assertive in terms of its relationship with Hong Kong. It has become much more assertive in terms of the incursions into, into Taiwanese airspace. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you, you can go back in history, but I've seen where China has said there's two things. We, we have unlimited respect for territorial integrity. And we believe what Russia is doing is justified. 
Well, you can't square both yeah. of those yeah. things if you're, if, if you're anybody. Either you believe in territorial integrity or you don't. And that is the question that I think people are going to be looking at going forward. So I agree the short term, you're probably not going to want to be pulling your businesses and investment and people out of Taiwan. But things are on the table now that weren't on the table, certainly, you mm. know, pre-pandemic, let mm. alone let alone pre-invasion. Well, Steve, great to have you with us back in the studio. First time in two years, Steve yeah. Oaken. Those of you who are not on Facebook Live, we are literally sitting in the dark because all of the lights have it, gone out. Yeah, I would just like to say <laughs> thanks for coming in, Steve. But why did you turn our lights <laughs> off? SPH Wait, radio. Uh, but he did shed light on a lot of topics. Oh, oh. Wait, you see? The CNN Wait, I would over there. You see? For, for, those, for those at home, it, the scramble in the studio... When the lights went out and Neil's pulling out lights and Glenn's <laughs> got ring lights and it is amazing to see uh, this what the happened, magic. the magic behind the scenes. I'm just kind of enlightening people now of how talented uh, this crew and Nora are to which, have pulled which is this a, off. Which is exactly why you're going to be invited back next week. <laughs> yeah. All right, Steve. Hey. Thanks very much for everything. Appreciate it. We'll see you next week. See you next week. Take care. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.s or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.